From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We've always got some type of stress taking place. So we always, if you look at a scale of zero to 10, stress is really never at a zero. It's always kind of at a one or a two, maybe a three. And then we encounter some event and it shoots up to a six or a seven. What's happened in the last few years is that that baseline stress level, normally being a, a two or a three maybe, has jumped up to a five or a six. And then when we have something that we encounter, we immediately go to a 10. Now a 10 is a, a threatening, you know, threatening level event where your, your life is at risk. And so we're having these minor issues, these more what we would have typically called a few years ago, normal routine daily stressors that send us overboard. And we go into that fight or flight mode That's Jeff Comer talking about the stress levels that people are experiencing and the stresses that are sending people over the edge. We'll hear more from Jeff in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. As a healthcare organization, do you feel like processing your claims is too manual or takes too long? Or do you ever feel like you're just leaving claim revenue on the table? Zoll AR Boost is a real-time accounts receivable solution suite from Zoll Data Systems that simplifies and expedites your pre-billing process by delivering accurate, actionable data to reveal hidden coverage and drive self-pay and high deductible conversions. Zoll AR Boost helps ensure that no payments are left on the table. Visit zoldata.com slash ARBoost for more information. Unlock an easier way to schedule your team with Deputy. No spreadsheets, no hassle when staff wants to swap shifts, and no last-minute panic when someone calls out sick. Deputy simplifies staff scheduling, automates timesheets, and streamlines team communication all in one easy to use platform. Deputy does it all so that you can focus on the work that matters most. Ready to take Deputy for a test drive? Start your free trial or contact them at deputy.com. Our guest today is Jeff Comer, PhD, MHA, FACHE, who has spent more than 20 years as an interim and permanent acute and behavioral hospital CEO. Jeff's here today to talk about the factors that are causing many people to act out in various harmful ways. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I just can't believe it's been eight months since our last one. I guess time goes by when you're having fun, but uh, it's good to see you again, and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, you're you're completely right. I had to go back and just see how long has this been. So it was, I believe it was August 2021, like you said, about eight months ago. So bring our audience up to speed then. Um, as I was looking back over our notes and when we had you on before, I hope I get this right. I just want to set the stage here. You have a PhD, you've earned an MHA, an FACHE. You have also spent a few decades, um, more than 20 years in permanent acute and behavioral hospital administration and at that executive CEO level. Am I getting that right? And did I leave anything out that you want to go over? 
<laughs> no, that's covered in. And gosh, when you said two decades, that that hit hard. I, I realize it's been a long time. So for some reason, twenty years doesn't sound as long as two decades. But uh, yeah, no, that's that's got it. <laughs> oh, great. Um, well, glad to have you back on the show. And so let's just catch us up to speed real quick. Then, so we had you on eight months ago. What's been going on in your world? Have things sped up? Have they started to normalize? What's happened over those last eight months for you and your profession? You know, it's funny, Daniel. I, I never actually planned this in my career, you know, two, dec two decades ago when I started this, but I have been consumed with uh, doing burnout and stress activities. So I, uh, I'm doing some work with Psychology Today, writing a column for them on burnout and stress. So that's, that's new. I'm working on a book on burnout and stress. And then I have been doing so much work with organizations and individuals. Uh, this burnout phenomena is just, it's almost everybody now, particularly in healthcare. And it's at all levels. It's the frontline caregivers. It's the CEOs. It's the board members, uh, the volunteers. It's just, it's just become so widespread. So Honestly, this last eight months, that's all I've been working on is helping people and, you know, organizations, hospitals, medical groups to deal with, with burnout and stress and how they can try to get it under control and, and get back to some sense of normalcy in operations. So it's been a, uh, an interesting few months, but um, a lot of work still needs to be done. Okay. I, I'll ask you real quick then, because we're going to be talking a lot about stress today, as you've been doing your own research there, is anything stood out to you at all in, in the avenues that you're taking, the, the studies that you've been doing as far as mm -hmm. stress is concerned? What's, what's emerged for you? What surprised you? Or what have you just uh, nodded your head and go, well, of course, that's exactly how I thought it would play out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess psychology is almost the art and science of uh, the retroactive. You know, someone comes to our office as a psychologist, and we we go through their whole history and, and then we say, oh yeah, well, of course this is why you're depressed because all these things for the last 20, 30 years. Uh, but, but when you try to do it going forward and predict, it's much more difficult. And I think, you know, when COVID first hit, I think everybody in the behavioral health world thought that this would just be like previous epidemics. So we've had bad flus before the, uh, I can't remember, you have know, the hantavirus, the swine flu, and you know, we, it was kind of a difficult month or two and we got through it, but, but this one, the whole world shut down and nobody could have predicted that when it first came out. And so I think, you know, had we known up front that that was going to happen and three years later, we'd still be dealing with it. We could have easily said, you know, here's all the psychological effects that are going to happen. Here's what's going to happen as a society. Here's what's going to happen to stress levels. But we just didn't know from the, the onset that this was going to take the, the turn that it did. And I think that the downstream effects of all of the stress we've had from it, uh, we're really seeing that in society now. And even it ties into the, the economy and the political situation. And so it's really interesting to watch this. It's, it's like if I go back three years and think, okay, yeah, this, we should have predicted all this, but, but at the time to the extremes that it went to. And so I think we're just now really starting to get a good understanding of the effects that the lockdowns have really had on us from a psychological perspective. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. So you and I were talking offline. We were talking about stress, um, the way it's impacting people, we both had run across an article that recently appeared in the Atlantic magazine. The title of it was, 
why people are acting so weird. And really, it caught my attention. It touches on some of the things we've all seen. I mean, most recently, we saw at the Oscars, we saw Will Smith, you know, and whatever form, you know, whatever. If I'm not going to get in there and analyze uh, what he did, but he but he basically got on stage and, and slapped Chris Rock. And would this have happened more than two years ago? Would uh, some of these tantrums we've seen um, in grocery stores, on airplanes, all these things, I mean, that's something to to look back on, but we've seen more and more of these behaviors. So I just want to ask you, uh, what is going yeah. on? What's happening here? Yeah, and you know, Daniel, it's a fantastic question. And it is a, I'm going to try to be brief and answer it, um, but it is a very difficult question to answer because there's a lot going on with it. Uh, essentially, I would say that over the last several years, the emotional levels and stress levels have increased so much. And it's happened in, in two ways. So typically on any given day of our lives, and let's say you know 10 years ago, 100 years ago, or last week, we have a baseline stress level. We all, as human beings, we all have stressors in our lives every single day, you know, traffic situations or you know, kids that we're dealing with, or you know, friction at home with our significant other or an aging parent. We've always got some type of stress taking place. So we always, if you look at a scale of zero to 10, stress is really never at a zero. It's always kind of at a one or a two or maybe a three. And then we encounter some event and it shoots up to a six or a seven. Well, what's happened in the last few years is that that baseline stress level normally being a, a two or a three maybe has jumped up to a five or a six. And then when we have something that we encounter, we immediately go to a 10. Now a 10 is a, a threatening, you know, threatening level event where your, your life is at risk. And so we're having these minor issues, these more what we would have typically called a few years ago, normal routine daily stressors that send us overboard. And we go into that fight or flight mode. And that's a lot of what we're seeing now. Now, the, you have to kind of think about it and why this has, has come about. And, and I think, and, and there's more ways to explain this, but I see three categories right now that are really impacting us and driving a lot of this. And the first, not to beat a dead horse, but, but COVID. Of course, we know the lockdown was very devastating to us from a psychological perspective. Uh, it caused depersonalization, uh, even just the masks themselves. You can't tell somebody is smiling or scowling at you. And when we look at the psychological research on just the effect of the mask, it's made us become very leery of other people and not as personable. We don't reach out and smile to strangers. We kind of keep our distance. It's almost created this me versus you mentality. Now you couple that with the isolation that we've had from COVID, that hit us very hard. Human beings, as everyone knows, are very social beings. We want to interact. We want to be with other people. Our kids especially need that interaction in their developmental stages. And we lost a lot of that during the, the uh, pandemic and the lockdowns. And if you think about it from an evolutionary psychological perspective, I, I know you've heard me talk about this before, but our brains have not caught up to society and technology and where we actually live today. Our brains don't evolve that quickly. So our brains still think we're back on the grasslands of Africa. And if you think about a lockdown from that psychological evolutionary perspective, you can see some of the stress this caused because we're isolated. Human beings from an evolutionary brain perspective rely on a clan. We rely on a tribe, a social structure to keep us safe. 
to protect us, to, to guard us, to protect us from other uh, uh, tribes, to protect us from predatory animals. And when you lose that, you have this, this fear that kicks in. And so a lot of what happened to us in isolation is we're dealing with evolutionary psychological concepts that produce fear in us. The final thing with COVID is we could die from it. So again, from an evolutionary perspective, your stress level went to a 10 because we saw people that we knew die. Every one of us was touched by somebody in our, our networks of family, our friends that died or had severe uh, symptoms and issues with COVID. So it, it really got in to this evolutionary psychological conflicts. That's the reason that the domestic violence is up, child abuse is up, substance use is up, divorce is up, mental health issues are all up. So that's one of these categories that I look at. But if you go further and look over the last few years, we have had all of these national and international issues. Now, we've always had those as a human species. We've always had you know, wars that have taken place. We've always had negative politics. We've had difficult elections, but it's been a little bit different this year. When we look at all of the crime, the violence that's increasing, when we look at the inflation, the economy, border crisis, climate issues, and now the, the atrocities being committed in the Ukraine. I mean, I grew up under the, the Cold War. I'm, I remember when I was in school as a little boy, we would have videos in classrooms showing us how we need to get into bomb shelters at mm -hmm. night. And then this Cold War kind of died down. It was, it was remedied. We thought it was over. We could move on. And now we're looking at, again, I mean, you've got news articles saying that, that, you know, we could face World War III. You look at all of those things, but now you look at them under a new lens that we have today that we haven't really had as much historically as human beings, and that is through a polarized view. Social media, uh, social algorithms on the search engines such as Google, uh, they target information based on your preferences and your biases, and then they take you further down that road. So it used to be, uh, you know, I was growing up, my, uh, my mom was a Democrat and my dad was a Republican. And lo and behold, they lived together happily and they were married and they had a great marriage and they raised a you know, halfway decent kid and they had their disagreements politically, but they were kind of right in the middle range. Now, my gosh, you got people getting divorced because one person's a Democrat and one is a Republican. And the reason for that is we have polarized everything. So that third category of, of kind of recent trends is this divisiveness, this polarization, and this, this mentality of us versus them. And we've lost that middle ground. And so when you couple that with the national and international issues, with the COVID isolation, the evolutionary fears, basically it's changed our habituated patterns. It's changed our sense of routine and normalcy. And that has led to a loss of control. Now, anytime in psychology, when you have a loss of control, it's very devastating to human beings. We, we thrive on having that control. We thrive on having a, a say in our future, a say in events, a say in what's going on in our life. But with most of these issues, COVID, the world events, the national events in this polarized situation, we have very little control over that. And that leads to uncertainty and fear. So all of these things have come together the last three years. And now our stress levels, when I start out by saying that they've kind of moved up a notch, that's why they've moved up a notch. So now, you know, you get into this situation like the Will Smith situation and maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, Will Smith would have just made some negative comments in the media the next day. He certainly would have jumped up on stage and, and slapped you know, the person saying it. You see it all day long. You see it on airlines with mask issues. You see it in the streets and schools, on the news. You, you can't get away from it. We're just immersed in all of these issues in this, this immersion, this polarization, and this lack of control that we have coupled with our isolation has produced all of this stress and all of these psychological issues. 
Mm-hmm. Again, it's a long, it's a really hard question to answer. I could spend hours on it, but that's kind of the, the believe it or not, that's kind of the shortest version that I can give of, of what's going on right now from a psychological perspective. Right. And you've touched on so many points that I want to follow up on. So yeah. I'm going to talk on, on one first. I'm going to go a little bit deeper into the so- social isolation. If we think back yeah. in literature and uh, our history, we think of maybe a Henry David Thoreau socially isolated, and it's very romanticized. But as you were explaining to us, um, maybe in doses, it's good to get out there, get out there with nature, get out there, you know, maybe it's just you or you and a a dog or something like that, or a best buddy, but you're pretty isolated. But what you're talking about in, in reality, if we're part of the world, so to speak, communities mean a lot and whatever that community is our tribe so to speak if it's our peers at work if it's uh, the group we hang out with after work if it's an extended family whatever that might be talk to us what is it doing to our brain to be isolated for this extended period of time like we saw at the baseline evolutionary concept, it's producing fear. Because again, picture yourself back hundreds of thousands, even millions of years, you're on the plains of Africa, you're trying to survive, period. That is your only focus is survival, avoiding the predator, avoiding eating the plant that would kill you, avoiding the competing tribe. The way you survived was in numbers, was in that support structure. You had uh, the, 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 you know, hunters that would go out and try to bring food in so you didn't starve to death. You had, uh, you know, people in your tribe that were there to watch out for predators. Your brain was wired to look at negative things. It's called the negativity bias. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But for example, your amygdala is the emotional response center of your brain. Your olfactory bulb is the area in your brain that interprets smells. The, the olfactory bulb is actually tied directly to the amygdala, which people are kind of surprised at that. But the reason for that is smell is a way that you can detect a poison, a toxin that you should not eat. So everything in your brain is wired to keeping you alive and safe. And when you lose that social structure that really produces this safety, you have this underlying fear. And it's really hard for us in today's terms because we don't think of tribes and clans. We don't think of safety and numbers from the, the standpoint of being on the, the grasslands of Africa, but our brain doesn't quite understand that yet at the evolutionary primitive levels in your brain. So that's the first kind of category of why a support structure is helpless. Basically, evolutionary primitive brain type of thinking. But then there's more um, kind of updated uh, ways to look at it. Right now, with all these things going on in the world, we we don't have a real good outlet for it. We can't interact with our friends. We can't interact with our loved ones. It's very difficult to go see a therapist. It's difficult to deal with issues with your boss. We don't have that ability to interact directly with other human beings to get stuff out of us. And if we don't get stress and, and worries and fears out of us, out of our brains, out of our bodies, it doesn't go away, it sits there and it festers and we ruminate on it and it becomes worse and worse. So that social interaction we have is really very important. And no, it doesn't have to be 24 seven, 365. 
Absolutely, we want to go out with the dog and get into nature and hike and have that alone time. But we also do need a blend of that time with others so that we can get some of this stuff out, so we can interact with people, so that we can share ideas and learn from one another. That's a very important concept of being a human being. And we lost most of that. And again, from the standpoint of kids, that's where the, I'll tell you, Daniel, I'm actually very concerned about our kids right now because you look at the research that's coming out and it is really troubling how much this has impacted kids keeping them out of the classroom and, and i'm not getting into you know the politics of doing it right. i'm not getting into the the health reasons for doing it not not touching that i'm just saying psychologically it was really devastating kids absolutely need to have that social network we all know when you're a teenager your social network is more important than your family structure more than their parents as parents we don't like to admit that but it's very true from a psychological perspective what happened on social media polarized our thinking even further which made dealing with some of these national and international issues even harder so all of this ties together and a lot of it comes back to that support structure that we lost during the covid lockdown and now some of these kids you know it's three years later and they're really struggling with those relationships. They've lost those skills. The brain, it only has a few years of formative time. And if they lose that formative time in those critical ages, it's really hard to get that time back. So we're now seeing a lot of kids struggling getting back into the social structure with their friends, going back to the sporting teams and classrooms and, and all the different things that go with being a, a kid and, and interacting with one another. So it, it's, it, it damaged us at the time, and now it's damaging us even more with the kids trying to get back. So again, this is another question I, I literally could spend hours on, but, but those are kind of some of the general reasons why that isolation has been so psychologically harmful to us. Okay, thanks for that. Now, Jeff, I'm going to break the fourth wall for a second. Uh, I was getting an unstable, I've been hearing other people in my office saying our Wi-Fi is a little goofy. So what I'm going to do, I would love to keep my camera on, but I'm going to turn it off just to see if it improves my internet connection. So I'm going to hit that right now. Okay. So do you need me to turn mine off too? I don't know if it matters, but I'll see if you freeze up again. It's it's because it's my, it's my um, maybe just to help us with the bandwidth, I don't know. I think we suddenly have, uh, you know, 120 people here today. And so we're all streaming right. and communicating and doing all kinds of stuff. So, right. okay, so that was great. Um, I don't think it froze up for very much, but I just wanna be safe here. Okay, so okay. I appreciate that, Jeff. And I wanna follow up with something else that's, kind of I've been curious about, and this came up in that Atlantic article as well. They were posing the statement about rudeness being contagious. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, whether we call it rudeness or if it's a more extreme behavior than what, we, you know, just that's almost a civil way to describe it, but just really, right. really bad behavior. Um, we we have access now because everybody carries a phone and a, has a camera on there and they can immediately upload those outbreaks that somebody exhibits on an airplane or in a grocery store or wherever it might be. People are seeing these things. And I know that it's, I wouldn't want to call it a copycat thing because you can see the full emotional 
aspect of it when it when it blows up, so to speak, in public. But is this contagious? What what is going on there? It, it absolutely is. Uh, emotionals can be very contagious. And um, just kind of as a side note, you know, if I'm working with somebody who has a lot of uh, depression, a lot of times I will tell them just as hard as it can be at the time and in the moment, put a smile on your face, walk outside with a smile, you, you will automatically start to feel a little bit better. And we all know when you're walking down a hallway and you see strangers, if you're smiling, they tend to smile back. So emotions can be very contagious positively, but unfortunately also negatively and, and even more so negatively. And the reason for that, there's a couple of things I'll cover, but I talked just very briefly about the negativity bias and the human brain is wired to look for the negative. And there's a very important evolutionary reason for that because the negative are the things that can kill you. And so your brain is wired to look at negative things. So if you're you know, walking on the plains of Africa, I'll go back to that again, and you are, are trying to see these beautiful flowers over here, your brain is saying, nope, forget about those beautiful flowers. They're not gonna kill you. We wanna look for the things that can kill you. So you're, you're wired to look for negative things in your life still to this day. And so when those things happen on the media, social media, you see them live, you really tune into it. Very interesting. There was some research done, uh, I wanna say about a year ago, and it was studying Google search results. And this, this actually is a little bit longer than it's back during the elections. And it was, it was doing Google search results and it would show, and they used Trump as an example. And I'm not going into politics or anything like that, but mm -hmm. they would have 10 positive articles on then President Trump, but they would plant one negative article in there. And the views almost universally went to that one negative article. People are drawn to the negative. It's what we want to look at. We're wired to do that. And it also captivates our attention. And so when you see these negative events, you really zero in on them. You watch them more. Even if you don't really have an interest in it, you're still captivated, kind of uh, driven to look at that negative, uh, that negative article. So that is called the negativity bias. There's another aspect to this that I've always found fascinating. I won't go too much into the technical science, but we have neurons called mirror neurons. And what those neurons do, they are there for our, our development in the childhood years. So kids, they see their parents' expressions, they see how parents respond to things, and they mirror that. They actually have neurons that cause them to mirror that parent's behavior. Again, it's for a developmental period, but those mirror neurons stick with you throughout life. And so that's why if you are walking down the street and you're smiling, other people will smile back at you. They're, 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 they're neurons electrochemical messengers actually cause them to smile back at you. Now, again, because of the negativity bias, you couple that with mirror neurons, you're much more likely to copy the negative behaviors, the bad behaviors. So there's, there's a chemical, biochemical component of you that causes you to, to find emotions to be contagious. Um, there's some other things with this though too, and these get a little bit more psychological. Um, humans in general want to be approved by other people. Now I'm not saying you know to the to the extent that we're it becomes dysfunction or a psychological disorder of seeking approval from others, but in general we want to be liked. We want people to respond positively to us, and so we tend to because of the negativity bias. We tend to, when we see these bad behaviors, to emulate them uh, and to copy them a little bit more. And part of that gets back into just social approval. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, just kind of the psychology behind it. And then finally, when you look at today with these stress levels shifting upward, like I talked about earlier, um, 
this concept of the confirmation bias becomes very important because a lot of people will have feelings, they'll have emotions. So for example, uh, if you're on a flight and, and again, I'm not going to politics or giving my opinions or anything, but if you're a person who just hates the mask, you believe that we should not be wearing them, we should not be forced to wear them, you actually might want to, to give your opinions. You might want to tell people you don't want to wear a mask. Now that person's got their mask on the plane, but then they see somebody else not wearing a mask, having a fit, causing a scene, yelling at the flight attendant, and this other person joins in because now they feel that, that their bias has been confirmed by someone else, and they've got to strengthen numbers because somebody else believes what they do. So you've got all these psychological principles that are driving um, us to... Um, to be able to say that emotions are contagious. So that's kind of what's going on with all this. So the, the short answer to your question is yes, emotions are very, very contagious and that can be positive as well as negative. Okay, okay. Um, I, like you've said a few times, you and I, we could sit here and talk about this for hours and maybe we need to look at uh, developing a program here where we could uh, do an educational seminar or something um, yeah, on this topic. Absolutely. That could be something oh, really absolutely. interesting down the road. So uh, stay tuned, everybody. You may hear some breaking news here. <laughs> but I wanted to touch on one more aspect. I do want to get to some solutions-based uh you know, steps to take as well. But I did want to touch on one more bit of research that appeared in that Atlantic article. It was uh, referencing some new research by Hepatology uh, Journal. Uh, and this is regarding excessive drinking and also excessive uh, yes. drug use that took place over these past two years. Um, it, it's in particular, excessive drinking increased by 21% um, oh, during the pandemic, uh, some really, some, some bad behaviors that and habits took hold with people that, uh, are affecting their health, uh, maybe affecting their personal life, their professional lives. Talk yeah. about that. Have you been experiencing this? Have you been, as you've been working with your patients as well, and just talking to your colleagues as well, what has been happening why have people been driven to drink or drugs or whatever yep. behaviors yep. that they can even see be self-destructive? Absolutely, this happens. Uh, and I, I see it uh, personally. I see it in the research that you just mentioned. A lot of it gets back to that lack of control. When mm -hmm. we feel we have no control over anything, we tend to start self-medicating. Um, and, and unfortunately, alcohol, uh, and I'm not you know, again, I'm not passing judgments on, no, on anything. No. That's not my intent. But alcohol will never help when you've got um, uh, behavioral health issues, mental health issues that you're trying to self-medicate. It, it, by definition, will make it worse. And we can talk about the, the neurotransmitter effects and all of that, which is for a different discussion. Uh, but it, it is never helpful. And it, it will almost always make the situation worse. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, the person that had a you know 14 hour day at work and just you know is tired and just wants to have a nice glass of wine and you know sit back outside with his wife or you know her husband and, and enjoy the wine together. That's a different thing. When you're talking though, when it's crossed into the over drinking to the alcohol abuse, the right. substance abuse, uh, that's obviously very much a disorder uh, and people do need to get help for it. One of the problems has been getting help is more difficult. Right. There's a huge, huge shortage of mental health providers in this nation. And now it's all done through Zoom. It's 
you know, people are having one and two month waits to get into a mental health provider. They're stuck at home. They can't even go out and talk to their friends, their family, gets back to that earlier conversation we had about the isolation and this lack of control and this fear and this uncertainty. All of these things come together and it's just kind of easy for people to pick up a glass of whatever their drink of choice is and, and start there. And it, it, you know, it, it, it does make you feel a little better in the short term. I'm not saying it doesn't, nobody would argue that, um, but the long-term effects are certainly not worth it from a psychological standpoint, a physiological standpoint. And of course it, it makes the, uh, the, the relationship issues, you know, I mentioned the domestic violence, the divorce, all of those things are going through the roof uh, during the pandemic. It certainly makes all of those worse. So there, there's absolutely nothing good that's coming from that, of course. And uh, it, in my opinion, it is a, a nationwide issue that must be addressed. We've got to get more mental health practitioners out there. Uh, rural communities almost have no access to them. Uh, so I think it's it's something that truly, in my opinion, is becoming a crisis proportion. And, and it's not just the substance use. I mean, you look at, and I know this is a very gray area definition, and, and some other psychologists will get mad at me for saying this, but there is substance use and there's over drinking. They're two separate issues. They're both not good. But I think, you know, a lot of times when it crosses into the true substance use, that's when the people's family, their friends, they lose their jobs. You know, everybody starts saying, hey, you've got a problem. And it's a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say easier to address, but it's more, it's brought to the person's attention more. When you have the person that's the over drinker, uh, they're still pulling their job, they're still in their relationships, uh, but it's still doing damage to them. It, it can be even more difficult for them because they're much less likely to get help in dealing with it. So it's, a, again, well, these questions you're asking are, are tough ones to give short right. answers to because they are long, long, complicated uh, issues. But, but the key, yes, the alcoholism, substance use, all of those terrible things are up dramatically. You mentioned that water about 21%. Uh, I don't see that getting better right now. We've got a mental health crisis in the nation that needs to be dealt with. Uh, and, and we've got to you know, continue to try to get the world back to, to normal where we're not so isolated. I know it's happening slowly, but uh, uh, I don't see a change in that, that those uh, statistics right now. I think they're still going to continue. Yeah. And Jeff, you made some really good points there. And I want to speak directly to the audience for a minute as to what Jeff just said. It's not us being uh, some kind of moral arbiters here. Um, we're not saying don't have fun, don't have a good time. It was really pointing to excessive drinking, you know, where it is impacting your livelihood, your friends, your families, your work life, all of those things. And just wanted to make that clear distinction there. And really the genesis of Jeff and I having this conversation was... Jeff, from a professional and personal standpoint, being able to observe things and myself also observing those and having numerous conversations with practice administrators and physicians on this level of stress, this level of uh, things they're experiencing and seeing these outbursts and then seeing the uh, Atlantic article, which was backed up by statistics and research and discussions with professionals like Jeff. And so I just thought it would be interesting to bring Jeff on and try to make sense of it for the rest of us, just to try to make sense what's going on with the brain and the emotions. And so Jeff, as we close then, the one thing I really do want to talk about, because I don't want this to all seem like doom and gloom to people, but yeah. what are some steps here? What, yes. From your professional perspective, what are some things all of us can be doing when we do feel that depression or we do feel that 
I can't control this. So I'm going to do move to this bad behavior or this bad behavior. What can we be doing? Yeah, and, and that's really the, the, the crux of the issue here, Daniel. Um, first thing, I know this sounds trivial and simplistic, do something. Call your friend, talk to your friend, make an appointment with a therapist, get outside and go for a walk, take the dog out, go, go to the gym, do some yoga, uh, you know, find a, a meditation you can do uh, you know, through your social media apps, but, but do something. Don't just lay down on the couch binging on TV and drinking, that will not help anything. It will make it much worse. And, and the pain, the depression, the anxiety will, will continue to fester and come out in very bad ways. So the first thing is do something. And it ties to the second one. And these are really the most two, these first two. Um, focus on what you have control over. We don't have control over a lot of the national issues that are taking place. The world, you know, certainly the Ukraine, we don't have any control over that whatsoever. So, and I'm not saying don't worry about it, but, but focus on the things you have control over that you can do something about. So again, do something, take control, uh, change your mindsets. We get so focused on the negative. I mentioned that Google study. You know, don't don't let yourself go to the negative articles all the time. There's no reason to. One, you can't control what's happened with them. Take some time every day to focus on the positive. To to you know, I kind of hate to use some of the buzzwords, but but that focus on gratitude. No matter how tough life is, we all can find something each day to be thankful for. It could just be a phone call with a friend. It could be that you had that walk outside or saw a beautiful sunset or you know just enjoyed your cup of coffee in the morning. But but take some time to appreciate the the great things that you have. Uh, the other thing I would say is. We've been so isolated and, you know, binge watching TV and drinking and all these, you know, more negative things. Find some passion. Find what, what energizes you. What do you enjoy doing? Is there a hobby you've always wanted to try? I mean, maybe you've wanted to, I don't know, take up camping or you've wanted to learn a new language or you've wanted to whatever, start knitting or, or, or volunteering, <laughs> you know, whatever it happens to be. Find something you really enjoy that brings value to you and, and purpose. And, and uh, you know, it could be going to church. It could be volunteering with a, you know, a domestic violence shelter. I, I don't, it doesn't matter what it is, but it, it has to be something that is meaningful to you and that you really uh, can enjoy. Uh, the other thing, and, and I, I'll sign I'm lecturing here, I don't mean to, make time to get a little bit of physical activity in every day. I think a lot of times people, you know, they know I'm supposed to exercise and they say, well, I'm too busy, I don't have time. And I think a lot of times people think you've got to run a marathon or you've got to, you know, be in the gym for three hours and looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, that, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> 10 minutes a day of a brisk walk or taking the stairs up and down or just doing some yoga in, in your home with a video, 10 minutes a day, everyone else can make time for that 10 minutes a day. And eventually you'll enjoy it, you'll feel better and you'll go to 15, you'll go to 20 and it becomes a part of your routine. And that can do more for your psychological health than probably anything that you can do. Uh, the final, I know we're probably running out of time. The final uh, thing that I wanna mention is use social media wisely. The research, and I know nobody wants to hear this, I don't wanna say it, but the research is very compelling that social media does not bring uh, it, it does as much damage as it does good. So use it wisely. You know, don't spend hours uh, each day looking at the news. That's not going to help you have a better understanding of what's going on in the world. 
you know, use it for, for things that, that uh, are positive, you know, connecting with other people, finding those hobbies that you want to do, the groups, the clubs, that kind of stuff is much more positive than just staring at, at you know, whether you're a Fox News person or an MSNBC person, staring at either one of those all day long is going to get you stressed and depressed. So, so just use it a little bit wisely. So again, those are some of the things that, that today, right now, you can go out and do. Um, and, and most importantly, though, do something and focus on what you have control over. Okay, Jeff, I said that was the last question and I was not accurate. I do have one more question, but yeah. this may be a tip or a tool that you can provide our listeners that can save them from a, a bad outcome. And if we are in any of us are in that Will Smith situation where we may be sitting there enjoying the Oscars or enjoying whatever we're doing, we've all been there. And then we get cut off in traffic or something just yeah. zooms at us out of nowhere. How do we keep ourselves cool under that pressure? Because in Will's case, unfortunately, he didn't. Um, and we may find ourselves in that situation at some point. Is there a tool, a technique? What can we do to cool that flame? Absolutely. And, you know, the traffic is a really good example. We all face traffic issues. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I, I Sometimes it's do as I say, not as I do. I <laughs> like I have yelled at my steering wheel before. I've yep. you know, honked the horn. I've done all those terrible things. I admit it. Um, the first thing, though, get back to that sense of control in the mindset. I talked about changing your mindset. So first of all, that person that cuts you off, you have zero, zero control of that person yelling at your steering wheel or even worse, you know, gestures and honking and getting out of your car into road rage. That does nothing at all. In fact, you're just, you're, you're, you're falling into the situation even worse. Focus on what you have control over and change your mindset. So for example, in the, the, the situation, somebody is rushing around you, they cut you off and they zoom on by you. Uh, maybe you could look at it differently. Maybe you could say, okay, I don't like what just happened. I have no control over it. Maybe that person just found out that his wife was involved in a car accident. Mm -hmm. He's rushing to the hospital because she's going into trauma surgery. Try to look at it differently. You don't know what is going on in that person's mind. Yes, it could just be an obnoxious, disrespectful you know, jerk. It, it may be, but you don't know that. It could be a person who's having a terrible emergency and they're trying to get to where they're they're going to deal with it. That, that makes you think of it very, very differently. And again, control. You have no control over that other person, but you do have control over yourself and how you look at the situation. I know that sounds uh, kind of simplistic. And when you get in that situation, your stress reactive system is kicking in, your brain's not working as well, your emotions have taken over, but, but try to just restore that sense of control of yourself and change your mindset to look at things differently. It really can help to do that. Now, most of us also have certain things that trigger us more than others. Spend some time trying to figure out what those triggers are. Maybe it is traffic. Maybe when somebody cuts you off or gets on your bumper, that just sends you to the roof. Maybe it's a, a, a person you work with. They, they have some you know, behaviors that they do that really send you through the roof. Try to identify what those triggers are, and you can think about them in advance and, and plan your response a little bit more accordingly. So those are some of the things you can do to help in the day in and day out moments. That is such great advice, Jeff. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast, shedding some light on just such a critical topic right now uh, as we're seeing. So thank you again for all of this. Oh, Daniel, my pleasure. I hope it's been helpful to the listeners. And I think we all are in this together and, you know, let's change our mindsets and, 
and, and realize we're all struggling. We're all stressed and we've all got our own issues. And, you know, let's, we're, let's just try to work together through this. You know, we, we, we all are struggling right now and uh, we can do a better job without a doubt. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Jeff Comer. He's a PhD, has his MHA and FACHE, and Jeff has spent more than 20 years as an interim and permanent acute and behavioral hospital CEO. Also, thanks to Deputy and to Zoll for sponsoring this week's show. As a healthcare organization, do you feel like processing your claims is too manual or takes too long? Or do you ever feel like you're just leaving claim revenue on the table? Zoll AR Boost is a real-time accounts receivable solution suite from Zoll Data Systems that simplifies and expedites your pre-billing process. Go to zolldata.com slash ARBoost for more information. And Deputy simplifies staff scheduling, automates timesheets, and streamlines team communication all in one easy-to-use platform. Deputy does it all so that you can focus on the work that matters most. Ready to take Deputy for a test drive? Start your free trial or contact their team at deputy.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. And to access all of our podcasts, go to mgma.com slash listen. And if you want to add to the conversation, email us at podcasts at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights Podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.